as uh, four caveats to start with, which is anybody who knows me, that's how I always start things. One is uh, I put this PowerPoint together on a Mac and stuff has gotten slightly reformatted and it's all there, but it's slightly reformatted and if you were wondering why I have the strange formatting, it's because they talk to each other mostly rather than perfectly. Uh, a second announcement, uh, there's one vocabulary turn, a phrase that you're going to need to hold on to over the course of the evening, and I'll explain it about slide seven. But it's transnationalism from below. Everything else should be straightforward, but transnationalism from below is the one that has a particular meaning, and we're going to go back to it again and again. Uh, another note, um, and this is the advertisement, um, a color uh, copy of a brochure uh, for Two courses I'm teaching this summer uh, in Mexico, uh, related actually, uh, at least indirectly to the research I'm going to talk about tonight, uh, has circulated around. Uh, and those are um, courses, one's an undergraduate course, one's a graduate course on schooling and teacher education in Mexico. And it's a travel study course that is intended to be uh, basically about comparative education, looking at one country's system for purposes and part of uh, gaining better understanding of our own. Um, let me move forward with the slide here, and uh, I want to, one, one of the challenges, if you think of the words U.S.-Mexico transnationalism, schooling and democracy, all of that's very abstract. Uh, we will make sense of them, but they are hardness, perhaps, to get our um, hands around. So what I want to do is paint you briefly, sketch for you is perhaps a, a better turn of phrase, a portrait of three girls. Um, all three, uh, when I met them, Actually, I should clarify, two of the three when I met them were in Mexico. I did not meet the third, uh, although uh, colleagues I was doing research with did, but uh, my information about this third person, um, one is named Cynthia, one is Cynthia's sister, uh, and then another is a, a young woman named Rosa. Uh, all of them were students in schools in Mexico. I encountered them in schools in Mexico. And all of them had previously uh, gone to school in the United States. Um, they represent different trajectories. Uh, their lives at this point are uh, obviously early on. They're young, they're students, but they're pointed in different directions. Uh, Cynthia um, uh, told us, she was a sixth grader when we met her, she told us that she wanted to become an English teacher. Okay? She told us that she had lived from the age of, I think it was four, uh, if I have something up here that says different, that's right. But it was from age four, uh, she lived in Oklahoma and had returned uh, when I met her a year and a half previously to rural uh, Nuevo Leon, uh, it's a state in Mexico, I'll show you a map of that also in a moment, um, where she was continuing to thrive at school. Uh, her teachers liked her, uh, things were working, but she did have school experience in two countries. Um, she said that when she grew up, she would like to return to the U.S. and she would like to be an instructor of English as a second language, okay? Because she was born in Mexico and she made a couple references, we never explicitly asked this, but she made a couple references to the fact that she had family still in Oklahoma that she wasn't easily in a position to see. Uh, the issue of crossing the border sounded like it wasn't something that was easy for her or her family. So I'm drawing by conjecture uh, a conclusion that she lacks documentation to legally be in the United States. So she aspires to be in the United States, she wants to be an English teacher, but the fact that she has that aspiration may or may not play out in terms of uh, where her life is headed. Her sister, younger than her, is uh, by one indication at any rate, a more vulnerable student. Uh, when she finished fourth grade in the US, she then followed by going to uh, school in Mexico, the Mexican system was not ready easily for a student who was more uh, strong in English than in Spanish. So she was asked to repeat fourth grade. Uh, grade repetition, at least in the US, is often associated with risk of, of academic failure or a, uh, a weaker school trajectory. Um, so we have Cynthia, a successful student, her sister perhaps, and it's a sketch, perhaps less successful. However, her sister, by virtue of being born in the United States, is protected by the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, which amongst other claims, and this was one of the Reconstruction Era uh, amendments that said, if you had been born in the territorial United States, you were a U.S. citizen. That ultimately enfranchised Native Americans and it immediately enfranchised African Americans when it was created in 1868. But it means that Cynthia's sister 
has a right as an adult to be in the United States because she's a US citizen. Different trajectory, but currently she's going to school in Mexico. The third student I want you to be aware of is Rosa, who when we encountered her was in seventh grade, you'll see there's an asterisk next to the sister and Rosa, uh, because in Rosa's case as well, it was seventh grade again. She had uh, moved from rural San Luis Potosí, which is another state in Mexico, as a three-year-old. Uh, I suspect that her father had been in line for permanent residency by way of something called the Immigration Reform and Control Act of 1986. Uh, all indications were that the family, although mobile within the state of Texas, she'd gone to many different school systems there, uh, had intended to stay. And uh, at some point, however, her father was found guilty of, and here's this sort of sufficiently major, sufficiently minor, uh, drug infraction, that he lost his permanent residency and was deported, but it was sufficiently minor that he was not incarcerated. So I don't know enough of the US drug code to know how much he was caught with and how much he wasn't caught with, but he is on some sort of intermediate ground. But he was deported, and suddenly his family was back with him. Uh, Rosa had not anticipated, as best I could tell, returning to uh, Mexico ever. Um, with her siblings, she spoke in English. Uh, with her parents, she spoke in English. She only agreed to be interviewed by us. She'd been in Mexico for two months when we encountered her, if we would interview her in English. Three girls, different trajectories. Uh, and, and the ultimate large question of this whole exercise will be what to do with them, okay? Uh, this is not a class, although I'm pleased to see by way of the honors program, many people have notebooks. Uh, you don't have a free right. However, if this was a class and I was leading it as a class, I often, and there's a couple people who will nod, uh, Anna perhaps, Erica perhaps, um, who are like, yeah, he makes us do free rights all the time. Um, one of the points of doing a free right is to sort of introduce a particular idea and get people to sort of think about it. So I wanted to name free right questions because they're sort of behind uh, where I want to take you tonight. One is, uh, to what nations do Cynthia, her sister, and Rosa belong? Okay. Are the, the obvious choices are the U.S. or Mexico. Perhaps we could change our conjunction, the U.S. and Mexico. Um, to what nation does their current schooling in Mexico assume they belong? Uh, we could ask a question, is Mexican schooling assuming that they are readying for an adulthood in the United States? Um, and we could suggest that perhaps it's not. Um, should it matter, and this is the second one, should it matter that Rosa is currently in a school that seems unready to support her? And I haven't described um, all of the dynamics related to Rosa, but another one was when we asked, is there a student here who has uh, ever gone to school in the United States? The administrators assured us they didn't think so. Uh, and uh, they said, but you have authorization from the um, Secretariat of Public Education of our state to practice with your survey. So sure, you can interview students in our school to see what kind of responses they give. And we practice with our survey instrument, we ask the question, and all of the students in Rosa's class turned and said, she is. Uh, it was pretty obvious to us that she was not popular amongst peers. Uh, she complained to us in English about how her peers, she thought, were the uh, theft, uh, thieves, thieves is the word I'm looking for, uh, thieves of her um, uh, magic markers, her art supplies. Uh, so her experience wasn't going very well, and I would suggest the school she attended was in a, uh, a colonia, a, a low-income sort of periphery of the city neighborhood in, in Monterrey, Mexico. And it was a neighborhood. Monterrey is an um, industrial, highly successful city in the, state, in the country of Mexico. It's four million people. And I would suggest to you that uh, it is a site where people moving from other parts of the country is the dominant storyline. The breakup of extended families is a dominant storyline. And, uh, and Cynthia, or excuse me, Rosa is, is lost in the crowd. Um, and then as an additional possible free right question, does it matter that Cynthia's sister is a US citizen? As we think about what kind of schooling ought somebody like that have, we can think about where they are, in Cynthia's sister's case, rural Nuevo Leon, um, rural Mexico. What should her schooling accomplish? Because, and I'll, I'll get to this more when I quote John Dewey later, uh, but we can ask ourselves, what is it that schooling, why do we have that social instrument? Why do we make youth all over the world now go through this rite of passage to adulthood? Is it, with what expectations uh, do we want that to happen? And then the uh, final question, and it's, we can ask it about these three because it makes it a little bit more tangible. But we could ask this about students in the US, we could ask it about students in Mexico, and we could ask it about students who are sort of living in between both of these worlds. What should their schooling accomplish? Is it readiness to participate in democracy? Hinted at in the 
title of the speech. Is it, uh, is it readiness to participate in the workforce? Is it readiness to engage civically with neighbors? All of the above, uh, and we can go on from there. Okay, uh, let me parse the title for you quickly. Uh, the next couple slides are gonna consider what US-Mexico transnationalism is and what dynamics steer it, okay? This is a topic of a course, I'm gonna to try to do it in about five minutes, so know that Q&A afterwards can clarify stuff that we rush past. Another task will be to consider uh, what the links are, or might be, between schooling and democracy. Um, it's a pretty typical turn of phrase, although rarely interrogated and, and further developed. We want schooling to support democracy. Well, good for us, what do we mean? Uh, and we'll, exper uh, we'll look at that a little bit more. And then the final part of this, the, the reason I encountered Cynthia, her sister, and Rosa, and a number of other um, students, uh, is related to a research project that I'm gonna uh, trace for you. Um, it's a data set with 23,000 student surveys, and we're not gonna go through all 23,000 surveys. We won't be here until March of next year. Um, but I will, I will trace it for you briefly, uh, because I think that gets interesting. But one way of looking at US-Mexico transnationalism is numbers. Okay, yes, I have admits this. Um, the Mexican-born population that lives in the United States, according to uh, the most recent U.S. Census population estimates available on the U.S. Census website, and it's important to have that as a caveat because this is from 2004. The 2002 recession was being recovered from. Um, the uh, spike of activity advocating for um, immigration reform uh, was still to come in terms of big, uh, um, big protests and, and, uh, and then counter-protests, the backlash. And there is good evidence at this stage that the, uh, particularly the foreign-born Latino population, predominantly Mexican-born Latino population in the United States is more likely to be out of work in this current recession, uh, is more likely to feel targeted, whether here illegally or, legally or illegally, is more likely to feel targeted by um, a disquiet, sort of public disquiet in terms of how uh, they conceive other citizens or others in the United States making sense of them. Uh, so this may well be a high number, although it's from 2004. At any rate, so uh, more than 12 million people, okay? Um, of that population, over a million, 1.3 million are under 18. So if we talk about the United States for a minute, there is a very substantial Mexican-born population likely in our schools, okay? Um, if you added together the populations of Lincoln and all of Metro Omaha, you still wouldn't have the number of Mexican-born under 18 uh, students in our country. I, whoops, what did I do? There we go, we're back. Um, we are accustomed in the United States talking about Mexico as an immigrant population. Uh, we're accustomed to thinking of ourselves as a receiving country and Mexico as a sending country. What we don't pay much attention to is the fact that Mexico hosts the largest overseas, or at least out of country, I guess you don't have to cross the sea, you could go over a river, um, go through a, a uh, road checkpoint, but at any rate, um, the largest portion of the overseas population in the United States, US-born population in the United States is in Mexico, okay? 25% of all Americans, US citizens living overseas, and this is in 1998, this is Department of State's newest estimate, okay? which brings up hazards of the, the timing of how often this is asked. One of the issues for the 2010 census, should we be counting in the US census US populations living overseas? Uh, US populations, by the way, living overseas matter a lot. Um, if you briefly pause and think about the Bush-Gore election in 2000, um, in Florida, the late international vote, which was particularly uh, Floridians who were involved in the military and living overseas, but Bush carried the out-of-country Florida vote by about 2,500 uh, more votes than Gore had. And if you remember, the margin um, in Florida was 527. Uh, so you could literally say that an out-of-country population that retains an allegiance to the United States swung the 2000 election. It's true that we could blame a whole bunch of other things as well, but that's at least one way of framing it. At any rate, uh, over a million people um, from the US living in Mexico uh, one of the expected growth industries in Mexico over the next 10 years, it's cheaper to live in Mexico than in the United States. Uh, there is an active attempt to, uh, particularly of cities like San Miguel Allende, Guanajuato, some of the older colonial cities, become uh, sites for uh, baby boomer, U.S. baby boomer retirements. 
And so there is a need for an infrastructure to respond to uh, Americans retiring overseas. But it's also the case that that population number includes kids like Cynthia's sister. Because what doesn't show up here is kids who were born in Mexico, went to school in the US, and now are back in Mexico. They don't show up. Okay, So a piece of the story, US populations living in Mexico is here. But the piece of the story isn't, depending on how we want to understand them. Uh, the additional um, fact that I want to direct at you, uh, there's a degree of serendipity as to when these things are scheduled. We'd agreed in September, I would talk in February. Um, and uh, just two months, or not two months, two weeks ago, the Department of Homeland Security came out with a report that was sufficiently prominent to make page three in a paragraph uh, of the Lincoln Journal Star, but I noticed it and therefore downloaded it, a report looking at um, uh, the number of deportees from 1998 to 2007 of adult aliens who uh, were identified as having U.S. citizen children, okay? And this is going to start to become an issue because part of what we need to understand is if you're born in the U.S., you count as a U.S. citizen, okay? But it's the case that we have deportable parents who have minor children who are fully dependent on their mi uh, the minor children are dependent on the parents and the parents can be deported. That's not the only reason, perhaps it's not even the major reason for returning. But one of the dynamics that's in play uh, as we think about U.S.-Mexico relations and schooling tasks right now is the fact that there are, that's a big number. Uh, 108,000 parents were sent back who had kids who by current U.S. law have a right as adults to live here, work here, vote here, they're U.S. citizens. Uh, U.S.-Mexico, transnationalism, history, a lot's happened. That's the really quick way to go through the slide. Um, going back to Texas, going back to the U.S.-Mexico War, going back to Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, going back to uh, Mexican Revolution, uh, the development of railroads. Um, one of the first major railroads commissioned in the, in the country of Mexico was governed by the laws of railroading of the state of Massachusetts because the start of the railroad was Boston. Boston or Massachusetts had the incorporated laws. So the, the linkages, transportation linkages, trade linkages, people movement linkages connecting Mexico to the U.S. are longstanding, including about a fourth of the territorial lower 48 used to be Mexico. Um, I do want to highlight one uh, last thing here, and it's this off of the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. Um, people are scratching their heads trying to remember American history. Uh, that got about two paragraphs in the textbook, the Mexican-American War. Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo was signed in 1848. That's why New Mexico is part of the U.S. That's why most of Arizona is part of the U.S., California, and so forth. One of the things that was guaranteed in uh, or Article 9 of the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo was the right of Mexican populations who now found themselves living in the United States to become, they needed to decide, do you want to move to what's now Mexico or do you want to stay? If you stay, you're welcome, you can become citizens. And the understanding was per U.S. law and the way the Constitution was interpreted at that time, that meant you had the liberty to continue to lead the life you wanted to lead. There was explicit language about if you want to remain Catholic, you can be Catholic. Um, there was implicit, uh, if you want to speak Spanish, you can speak Spanish. You want to school in your own way. And so it's kind of interesting to just sort of think about uh, how 170 years later, where we're at in terms of understanding uh, uh, populations from both countries. Anyway, um, most recently we have ICE raids, um, including the one in December 2006 in Grand Island, Nebraska, that amongst many other things actually separated parents from children and led to protests on the part of schools because there were kids that the schools of Grand Island were unsure whether parents would be home. Um, there's more to that. I promised you that there was one vocabulary word or phrase, uh, transnationalism from below. It's a, a framework here, a logic. Um, and in essence, it means that uh, it is wise from an economic risk minimization strategy for families or uh, tight-knit but extended groups, groups of more than one, to diminish their economic vulnerability by way of taking advantage of opportunities in more than one country. Simplistic way of explaining this, medicine is cheaper in Mexico. If you have a finite health budget and you happen to live in El Paso, go over to Juarez to buy your medicine, come back. It's cheaper, okay? Uh, a more dynamic and dramatic version of that is uh, you can have a matriarch living on the rural ajito in, uh, somewhere in Mexico 
and uh, one of her sons is going to work or try to work in the city of Monterrey, still in Mexico. Two more are living in Los Angeles, and the strategy is remittances back and forth will be shared amongst the family. Maybe somebody in LA is out of work, so the family needs to support that overseas or in the US part of the family. Uh, on the other hand, it's possible that that person has a job and they're the ones sending money back to the rest of the family. But the important point here is that it makes sense from a reducing risk standpoint for the family to stay in an enduring way involved in more than one country, okay? And I would posit to you that the dynamic that put Rosa and Cynthia and Cynthia's sister into the United States and then back into Mexico relates to this transnationalism from below. It makes sense to move. Um, in this case, you know, where is the care provider? Uh, but it's important to understand that the dynamic of mobility is supported by this logic, although schooling is not necessarily responsive um, to students being that mobile, particularly being internationally mobile. Okay. Um, one of the tasks I have, because the other part of this, this talk was talked about schooling and democracy, um, here is um, my attempt to parse um, a, a one paragraph long uh, comment. Several of you saw a handout that has a quote from John Dewey. It's about the first third of a page. This is the first third of that third, and then the next slide's going to be the second third of that third, and the last slide's going to be the third third of that third. But John Dewey points out, you know, why do we have education? Okay, writ large, why did this task exist? And uh, the one word answer is mortality. People die. If you wanna pass on culture and customs, you have to sort of share them with the next generation. That in its most umbrella inclusive sense is why we have education. Many societies, one could argue practically all societies in this day and age have decided that schooling is going to be an instrument through which that major task is realized. Um, as Dewey puts it, and I'll try to sound like I'm writing in 1916, the primary ineluctable facts of birth and death of each one of the constituent members in a social group determine the necessity of education. On the one hand, there is the contrast between the immaturity of the newborn members of the group, its future sole representatives, because the current adults are going to die, including me, um, and the maturity of the adult members who possess the knowledge and customs of the group. So the existing adults have customs, habits, knowledge, wisdom that they've got to pass on. Get that? That's a task of education. We've delegated a big portion of that to school. It sets up a question, who are the adults in Cynthia, her sister, and Rosa's life who are supposed to be doing that passing on, okay? The teachers at their current school, their parents, their extended family, um, people that they can communicate with by way of telephone or internet. Uh, I'm not positing that I have the answer to that, but it's a crucial question because we're saying that adults are supposed to be the ones passing on the wisdom of this generation to the future. Dewey continues, on the other hand, there's the necessity that these immature members be not merely physically preserved in adequately numbers, but that they be initiated into the interests, purposes, information, skill, and practices of the mature members. Otherwise, the group will cease its characteristic life. We can make sure everybody's fed, has water, physically survives, but when we talk about the transmission of culture, it's more than the next generation gets to breathe. The next generation gets to reproduce. There is a presumption of passing on of language, passing on of religious tradition, passing on of custom, the stuff of cultural life, okay? Uh, we can add, where should this, and I've turned uh, initiated from the Dewey quote into initiation, uh, where should this initiation occur for our three students, okay? Are they supposed to be being initiated in the US? Are they supposed to be being initiated in Mexico? All of the above? That's the question. Okay, and then Dewey finishes, uh, he doesn't finish, but I'm finishing with Dewey here. Uh, mere physical growing up, mere mastery of the bare necessities of subsistence will not suffice to reproduce the life of the group. Deliberate effort and the taking of thoughtful pains are required. Um, by the way, I'm eligible now as a 40-year-old for bifocals and don't have them, so I'm squinting. My apologies. Um, uh, beings who are born not only unaware of, but quite indifferent to the aims and habits of the social group, 
uh, have to be rendered cognizant of them and actively interested. Education, and education alone spans the gap. That's the task, okay? So what is the education of Cynthia, her sister, and Rosa supposed to do? What is the adult's task? That's one way of thinking about it. Now, I want to suggest to you there's a dilemma here. Schooling is typically understood as for national ends, and these are transnational students. They have tie-ins to more than one country. Is the schooling in Mexico going to suffice for a binational adulthood? For that matter, would the schooling in the U.S. have sufficed for a binational adulthood? Does schooling line up with, or does it not, transnationalism from below? Dewey goes on to clarify that schooling um, and education are not synonymous. He's surely right. We have mass media, we have peer pressure, we have other influences that are shaping the coming of age of the next generations. However, it remains the case that we leave it as the task for school to be the official organ of this transmission. Now, I'm going to ask as an audience interaction quiz question, who recognizes the quote, today, education is perhaps the most important function of state and local governments. Compulsory school attendance laws and the great expenditures for education both demonstrate our recognition of the importance of education to our democratic society. Hint, it's an American. Anybody recognize it? Apparently, I'm the only one who ritually revisits Earl Warren's Brown v. Board of Education unanimous majority decision from 1954 on a consistent basis. Um, so I, will, I was going to offer a quarter. We'll double it. 50 cents for the next quote. Uh, the people of the United States need to know, by the way, this is a little tricky because it's a group, it's not an individual. The people of the United States need to know that individuals in our society who do not possess the level of skill, literacy, and trainings essential to the new era will be effectively disenfranchised, not simply from the material rewards that accompany competent performance, but also from the chance to participate fully in our national life. And what I want to emphasize here is national life. It's not presumed to be more cosmopolitan than that. A high level of shared education is essential to a free democratic society. 50 cents is in play here for people who can recognize this quote. Um, looking around the room, most of you probably still weren't born, but you're closer. Any guesses? Another child left behind? Nope, nope, but it was, yeah, it was federal. You were right on that part. Tom, you gonna guess? A nation at risk. A nation at risk. <laughs> Patrice, can you deliver the prize money? Yeah. <laughs> okay. So let me suggest to you that both the Brown v. Board of Education quote and a nation at risk in a abstract but consequential way inform the schooling that Cynthia, her sister, and Rosa, and the million other Mexican-born but in the U.S. students encounter. Okay. They are told that they are supposed to be participants in a free, democratic, national society, and the assumption is that's an American society. Uh, one way of thinking about it, the task is fitting in to here, except here is now there for them. Uh, Mexico's, by the way, how many of you know how much the United States Constitution says about schooling? All of you are right. It says nothing. It says nothing, and you are ingenious for not bringing anything up because it's completely quiet. Um, however, the 1917 Mexico Constitution gets really long-winded about education. Okay? All of Article 3, on the handout that you have, you get the full text of Article 3 plus different pieces. What I want to emphasize for you is just a couple pieces, all of on this slide. Um, per Mexico's Constitution, schooling in Mexico is supposed to teach a love of country. Okay, so now Cynthia and her sister and Rosa and thousands like them are supposed to love Mexico and schooling is supposed to accomplish that. I'm not opposed to them loving Mexico, but it's not love North America, love NAFTA, love our northern neighbor and Mexico, it's love Mexico. Um, as importantly, uh, schooling is supposed to be democratic, considering democracy not only as a legal structure and a political regiment, but as a system of life founded on a constant economic, social, and cultural betterment of the people, okay? So like the U.S. that's identifying U.S. schooling as a vehicle for democracy, Mexico identifies its schooling as a vehicle for democracy. But the presumption is democracy within a nation state, not some more abstract, holistic democracy of a world federal government or something like that, okay? One more slide called Schooling for National Ends. 
By the way, those paying attention, that Mexico 1917 Constitution, that was the third in the theme of Schooling for National Ends, but I wanted to use the Constitution as the title there, so we skipped number three. We went one, two, additional slide, now four. Schooling for National Ends. Um, and this is from a, a new book, and it's just a final reminder, and then I'm going to show the data we'll do pretty quickly. It's called National Differences, Global Similarities, but it basically is a point um, in a global community, a high-quality public system of education is the sine qua non of modern democratic society. Many economists and others who study how nations develop stress that high-quality schools are essential for human capital development and economic growth of nations. So we're living in an era where school is going to matter. School is proposed as the vehicle for economic well-being, national membership, uh, successful nation-to-nation uh, -nation negotiation of the world. Okay. Two propositions in place so far. One is per transnationalism from below, it can make sense to live between countries or be of more than one. The other is that schooling is the frequent and contemporary societal answer to the need to educate and it is pursued on a national scale or smaller. Okay? All of that adds up to this slide. This leaves unanswered what schooling could or should look like for the transnationally mobile. A research study that the three students I've been talking about are exemplars of, but a research study makes this more tangible. With a colleague, and I'll show you a picture of them in just a second, visiting a representative sample of 1,673 randomly selected classrooms and 377 randomly selected Mexican schools, we surveyed 1,000, excuse me, 14,444 students in Nuevo Leon, which I'll show you on a map, and 9,217 students in Zacatecas. This is a huge quantitative study that is ultimately behind the tale of Cynthia, her sister, and Rosa. Okay? Uh, Obviously, there's me, slightly more here, but not a lot. Uh, I want to introduce this guy here is Victor Zuniga. He is the PI on the research that this was part of. And then another colleague, um, Juan Sanchez, um, who uh, was a doctoral student uh, as we were engaged in the study and is now a PhD um, as well. And uh, it's really, you can blame me for the incoherence of perhaps how I'm presenting it, but the quality of the data and the really richness of this, of this uh, data set is a collective product. And one of the things that's been a lot of fun in, in meeting with and knowing Victor and becoming friends with Victor and Juan is we realize Juan is a uh, longtime teacher. He teaches at a normal school, so he's part of a teacher education in Mexico. Victor is a, a nationally prominent in Mexico sociologist, is trained in France. And all of us bring these sort of different pieces. I can explain U.S. education systems to them. You know, when they talk about a DIFF program, one of the students interviewed, I can say what that is, pieces like that. It's really been a codependent partnership. Um, when we're talking about Mexico, 32, 31 states plus a federal district, 32 states, I take that back. No, but is 21 the federal district? Anyway, uh, what matters here is when we say Zacatecas, uh, north central Mexico, uh, Nuevo Leon is northern Mexico, quite close to the border. That's where our data sets come from. Uh, a reason for emphasizing that is we don't propose that this is a nationally representative sample. We have a really good sample of Nuevo Leon. We have a really good sample of Zacatecas. We picked those regions because Nuevo Leon is like some other states in Mexico, but not all others. Zacatecas is like some other states in Mexico, but not all others. Zacatecas is part of a historic, high-density, international migration participating part of the country. Jalisco would be in that category. Michoacan would be in that category. Guanajuato. Um, Nuevo Leon is part of a historic migration sending, but in lower volume. And what we wanted to do was include examples like that. Uh, some of you may have heard of migration more recently from southern Mexico, from Oaxaca, um, places like uh, Tabasco, Chiapas. That is a new dynamic. And we don't know if what we found in northern Mexico is akin to what is going on in places like that. Anyway. Um, we found in this surveying of all of these students, we found 512 students uh, who had previously gone to school in the United States. Okay? We also found 120 students who had been born in the United States and never gone to school in the United States, but by virtue of the 14th Amendment, they're US citizens. Okay? So as adults, they have a right to come back. Uh, if we project out these numbers, and pointing out to you that Nuevo Leon and Zacatecas are limited to the extent they can allow us to project a national number. So this is a very, very rough estimate. Uh, it is possible that there are over 200,000 US citizen kids going to school in Mexico right now. That would make Mexico the 41st largest state for America's rising generation of students. Kind of a daunting number. Do you see how I did that? 
there are 10 states with less than 200,000 students in the United States, K-12, okay? So Mexico would be 41st. It's also the case that you have an even bigger number, and we're guessing it's somewhere between four and 500,000 students who are from Mexico. Some may be eligible to be US citizens as well because of parenting, and that gets more complex. We didn't ask about that directly for a bunch of fraught reasons. So it's conjecture as if you were born in Mexico, you may not be documented and able to be in the US per that. Um, but there's probably 500,000 students uh, across, four to 500,000 students across Mexico who've gone to school in the United States. Um, my colleagues, uh, Victor and Juan, recently did a study. There's three feeder schools where, uh, that lead into the Universidad de Monterrey, where Victor um, is the dean of education. And 9% of the students enrolled in the prepa, the high school that feeds into the Universidad de Monterrey, have lived in the US and gone to school here, uh, which is a pretty high number, 9%. Um, anyway, so the idea that there is an overlap uh, hopefully makes sense. Um, we identified four types of students. Uh, those who were born in Mexico, gone to the US, and now we're back in Mexico. Those who were born in the US and now we're in Mexico. Those who had a uh, multiple migration history, um, whether it started in the US or not, but they crossed the border many times. And then those who had been born in the US that I mentioned. Um, confirming the applicability of the transnationalism from below explanation and raising questions about what Mexican schooling should accomplish, we found out that of all of the universe of students we interviewed in Mexico, so those with transnational experience themselves and those without, 8% uh, of all students in Mexico in the two states we visited had fathers currently working in the US or working in the US at the time we were engaged in our research. 9% had siblings, that said, and less than 1% had mothers. Uh, there is a growing participation of women in international migration, but when you become a mother, you seem to be less likely to be separate in the US, although there are examples of that, but you're less likely to be separate from your child who's back in Mexico. Uh, regional differences are important. Um, almost 12% of the Zacatecas sample had fathers in Mexico, almost 16% had siblings in, Mex in uh, the US, excuse me, whereas in Nuevo Leon it was 4% with fathers in the US and 3% with siblings in the US. Okay, this is a hard thing to see. Um, this says Mexicano or Mexican. This says Estadounidense, United States, and this says Mexico-Americano. The survey we passed out was in Spanish. Um, and what this is is of the uh, students we found um, who had transnational student experience, we asked them, how do you identify yourself? It's a forced choice question. Uh, most in both uh, Nuevo León and El and Zacatecas said they identified themselves as Mexicano. Okay? But a significant number identify themselves as American, which sets up a really interesting question. There's kids who think of themselves, not just their legal circumstances, but they think of themselves as American, although they're going to school in Mexico. And then there's this even more contingent category of not wanting to say they're Mexican, but not wanting to say they're not Mexican. They're Mexico-Americano, they're both. And it's this assertion at an identity politics level of wanting to belong to more than one, okay? And uh, this is the second to last slide, I believe. And then I want to do Q&A. Third to last slide. Oh, the last slide's references, so second to last. But I just wanted to give you an example. In our sample, this is where uh, the states of where the people we encountered in, in Nuevo Leon and Zacatecas, where they had gone to school in the US, okay? Um, we have Nebraska in our sample. We have Nevada, we have New Mexico, we have New York. The biggest one, and this is partly a legacy of Nuevo Leon is, uh, and Monterrey in particular, is tied to Houston and there's a frequent commerce and traffic back and forth. So the reason Texas is almost 40% of the, uh, almost 40% of the kids who claimed experience in the US claimed experience in Texas. Texas is the second largest state in the country. It's very close to Nuevo Leon. Most of our Texas experience sample we found in Nuevo Leon. Not surprisingly, if you think about demographics of California, they're at 22%, perhaps more surprising if you look at Georgia, 3.3%. If you look at Illinois, mostly Chicago, uh, you get 6%. If you find, uh, there's another one here that's uh, Washington State, almost 2%. Um, Michigan, 1.2%. So it's, it's a national diaspora in terms of where the US experience comes from, okay? Now, uh, to sort of bring this all back home and try to put this together in, in question form um, in, in an interchange back and forth, the free right questions I posed to you uh, were, to what nation do Cynthia, her sister, and Rosa belong? To what nation does their current schooling in Mexico assume they belong? Uh, should it matter 
that Rosa is currently in a school that seems unready to support her? Should it matter that Cynthia seems academically successful and aspires to engage in work teaching English that would be welcome in the US, although per her citizenship status, she might not be? Uh, does it matter that Cynthia's sister is a US citizen as we try to answer the question about what schooling should accomplish? Um, and then ultimately, what should their schooling accomplish? What, as we imagine them growing up to be participants in a democratic society, what does that mean? Okay, and so what I hope I've done is laid out for you some demographics. It's obviously a trace. The, the connection between school and democracy is, is at a very abstract level at this point. But what I would like to do now um, is, is welcome a little bit back and forth, a, a Q&A, um, to see if I can clarify where something that I've thought about for two or three years makes obvious sense to me, so I skipped it. And you haven't thought about it for two or three years, which is likely to your credit. Uh, and so I can try to respond um, directly to a question. So am I leaving anybody with questions at this point? I think we do have time for questions, so please. Yes, yeah. go ahead. Uh, one of the things we did in the survey was ask students to appraise their own ability in English. Um, we have proposals at this point, sort of extant, not yet funded, to go back and do a survey like this. And we think, um, I'll circle back to the language question um, in a minute, but we think because of the immigration crackdowns of the latter half of this decade, that there may in fact be higher numbers than we found doing this research in 04, 05. And if we go back and try to redo this survey and see if one consequence of US immigration policy is a heightened number of US citizen kids as well as kids with US experience going to school in Mexico, we want a better, more robust understanding of how well these kids speak English. Most kids, um, there's a distinction in um, English as a second language education between BICs and CALPs. BICs is basic intercommunicative skills. CALPs is language proficiency, cognitive academic language proficiency, which is more sophisticated, uh, deeper. I would suggest to you that the kids who'd been in the US for more than, say, six months all would have been able to demonstrably show off BICs skills. They would know slang. They'd know how are you. They would, they would comfortably interact in at least a limited English. We don't have a good appraisal of, um, at least not in a proportional stance, a good appraisal of how deep the knowledge of English is uh, for all of these kids. I will say um, the one example that we found of teachers modifying the way they worked with transnational kids, and we did do some teacher interviews as part of this research, and most of them were like, oh, they're here in Mexico, we've got to teach them how to be Mexican. Uh, they need to learn geography, that means they need to know which coast Acapulco's on and which coast Cancun's on. You know, I mean, it was very much a, ge a Mexico geography kind of orientation, but the one exception to that, in secondary um, in Mexico, you have English as a foreign language. And oftentimes, you had kids whose English was stronger than the English teacher leading the English lesson. And you would have teachers, savvy, an individual demonstration of autonomy, uh, welcome the kids in as kind of co-language coaches. Because uh, they realized that it was sort of silly to maintain the sort of pretense of, I know English better than you because I'm the teacher, except I don't know English better than you because you're demonstrating that you know better than me. Um, so there were certainly anecdotally kids whose English was very strong. And uh, we also had uh, students who asked if they could be interviewed in English, um, although I obviously speak English as a first language, but most, most of our research team uh, was more comfortable in Spanish, and some of our research team only could uh, interview in Spanish. So that may have been more than you wanted to know, but I wanted to, that's the long version of, well, I don't have an exact answer. <laughs> um, yes? Well, and that's a great question. Um, in Mexico, there is less frequently the kind of paraeducator support networks, for example. Uh, it is less common to have tracking. Uh, so basically, if you have a kid who doesn't fit into the slot that they would naturally go into, the question is, what are our alternatives? In the US, we would say, well, have a tutor, have a para, have somebody support. There is no such role in Mexico. and so. Uh, you're familiar with the expression, if your only tool is a hammer, every problem is a nail. If your only social formation uh, for schooling is grade level and the kid doesn't fit in fourth grade, well, put them through third grade again. Um, 
So yes, it was a diagnosis of language, although probably an informal one. Um, one of the things that's interesting, and there's a discrepancy uh, in Mexico between quality of schooling and resources behind schooling in rural areas versus urban areas, but one of the things that has also been found is kids coming out of particularly low-income urban U.S. systems back into urban Mexico uh, often are encountering math that is uh, more rigorous than what they were doing. So if you go from third grade U.S. math to fourth grade Mexican math, uh, if you were going into a rural area, the transition would be relatively seamless. If you're going into an urban area, it's likely that the Mexican math is farther ahead. Um, I don't want to claim that there is the same uh, fetish related to testing like we have in this country. Uh, so it's not as careful a diagnosis in terms of a placement. Um, but it's possible that reasons in addition to language. And our take on why she stayed back comes from her sister. Um, so we, we didn't, I mean, we, we have some interviews with teachers where they talk about a student of theirs who they know is transnational, but the nature of the way this research was designed, we weren't, and I, I don't think it would have been fair to students, we didn't want to sort of say, oh, now that we've identified that so-and-so has lived in Florida, what do you think of them? I mean, that, that sometimes we got teachers who volunteered that kind of stuff, but we never wanted to approach a series of questions in that way because it was, uh, we, we weren't comfortable with that. Other questions? I'll do that, and then, oh, oh, I'm, sorry. oh I'm sorry, Patrice is managing. I'm going to laugh. <laughs> what? I'm going to answer that somewhat indirectly. Um, the almost uniform storyline out of, we, we actually asked students their impressions of US schools and Mexican schools. Um, and invariably, US schools were described uh, as excellent, as terrific, as they had really enjoyed their experience there. Uh, Mexican schools were described almost as well, but there was a statistically significant difference where you know, maybe 4% of the sample said they didn't like Mexican schools. Maybe 15% said Mexican schools are okay. And what does that leave? 81% said they were good or great. Whereas we got no males, no bads for US schools. We got maybe 8% okay, and everything else was good. So the students' assumption of what their schooling had been like, which would be a holistic take, so it's not geography was great, you know, um, math stunk, uh, science was okay. You know, I mean, we didn't differentiate it that way. We didn't ask particular curriculum questions. But the holistic appraisal of experiences in U.S. schools uh, was consistently favorable. And actually, that there, let me throw one other caveat to you on that. Uh, of the kids who were likely to say anything even modestly less enthused about U.S. schooling, we had an over 90% U.S. schooling was great if your schooling experience was anywhere but Texas or California. Uh, if your schooling experience was in California, it was 85% good or great. And intriguingly, actually, in our Texas sample, it was something like 65%. So there may be something going on with transnational Latino kids in Texas. Uh, you know, that's the kind of thing where after you look at this huge data set, you wish you could go back and ask the kids again to flesh it out more and you only see it when you aggregate, so it's, but that's something that we'll probably bring up um, if, if we do a new round of surveying. I wanted to do Janelle and then over there. Um, I had a question about, um, you said you did a little bit of work with the teachers, so, and you talked about the one teacher, the mm -hmm. English teachers, who in their um, understanding or work or reasoning around having English teachers, but did you get a sense, did you get to um, hear from the teachers how they Uh, it, it's a complex answer. Um, it's complex for two reasons. One is our teacher sample was a sample of opportunity. We were visiting schools and if teachers wanted to talk to us and with a tape recorder and somebody was free because they weren't meeting with students, we recorded it, okay? So we, we have a sampling, we just don't know how representative it is. But in that sampling, there's a pretty heterogeneous group of responses. We had many teachers who told us they were dumbfounded and surprised to learn that there were students with transnational experience in their school. It never occurred to them that there were. So at least for those teachers and in those schools, it's an invisible population. 
Okay? We had other teachers, um, I'm, and we've actually put this in a publication. Um, we had other teachers who uh, were convinced, for example, we had a mono, monolingual Spanish-speaking, never out of Mexico teacher who uh, told us that she was sure that one of her students had gone to school in the south of the uh, US because her Spanish was so good. She, the student had actually gone to school in Chicago. Um, and had probably been in a household where Spanish was the first language. Uh, but there was this sort of very definitive, this is who this girl is, this is what she needs. And it was interesting because it was pretty clear that this teacher was talking about this student with other teachers because she told us that um, uh, her history teacher thinks she doesn't know anything about history. And you know, so clearly this was a girl who was talked about. At this level, it's an anecdote. Um, how many transnational kids were talked about kids? How many teachers were willing to do the sort of talk about kids behind their back kind of dynamic? I don't know, but we did record it and we thought it was telling. Uh, whether it's representative, I don't know. Uh, so that's yet another take. Um, we also, we had uh, one school we visited, and this will be the last teacher story I tell um, related to this. Uh, the US um, through, uh, what is it, Title III C, Title I C is the Migrant Education Program. And the U.S. actually in the summer has hosted for U.S. migrant kids, most of whom are uh, of Latin American descent, many of whom are Spanish speaking, will host Mexico teachers coming to the U.S. Um, and there was a school we visited where a teacher had actually taught twice, once in Pennsylvania in Lancaster uh, and once in Dallas. And intriguingly, that teacher didn't think that their U.S. experience mattered for what they were supposed to do with kids with transnational students' experience in Mexico. So it was a really sort of surreal, oh yeah, I know about your U.S. system. I know about federal funding. You know, somebody who could talk about ESL and transitional bilingual education and Title I and all of this sort of jargon of U.S. schooling. And yet figured that that was compartmentalized. That's relevant when I'm in doing migrant ed in America in the, in the summer. But it wasn't relevant to his conceptualization of his Mexico teaching task.